I'm Warren Smith, and today you'll be listening in on part one of my two-part conversation with pastor, writer, and ministry leader, Rick Warren. In God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. And we're all broken trees, Warren. I'm a broken tree. If God only used perfect people, nothing would get done. For most people who have been around evangelicalism for a while, Rick Warren needs no introduction. He and his wife Kay founded Saddleback Church in Orange County, California in 1980, and it has become one of the largest and most influential churches in the nation. Rick Warren's 2002 book, The Purpose Driven Life, has sold more than 50 million copies, making it one of the best-selling books of all time. And his work as a pastor and author are, in fact, just the beginning. Rick Warren was instrumental in the development of PEPFAR, the U.S. government's $15 billion AIDS relief package that was credited with saving tens of millions of lives. He was an advisor to George W. Bush, and he delivered the invocation at Barack Obama's inauguration. Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News & World Report have all named him at various times to their list of the most influential people in the world. I've interviewed Rick Warren for Listening In before, back in 2014, near the beginning of this program's life. It was one of the first public interviews he gave following the death of his son, Matthew. Today, we do talk about that time in his life and about Matthew, but this conversation is different from any that I think I've ever done on Listening In. Rick Warren had just announced his retirement from Saddleback Church, and I had the chance to go to California and spend the better part of an afternoon with him to commemorate this milestone in his life and career. We ended up having a wide-ranging conversation. And I even got to take a tour of his library, which I have to say is pretty magnificent. This episode is what I call the sit-down portion of our interview. We talk about his life and work, about what he was looking for in a successor, and what he'll do next. Part two of our conversation, which we'll be dropping simultaneously, is the walking tour of his library. I had both of these conversations at the Rick and Kay Warren Foundation headquarters in Orange County, California. And we'll get started after this short message. Now We Live invites and equips Christians to propel faith into action. This free worldview Bible study will spark rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions. These six videos from Summit Ministries offer life-on-life discipleship for churches, small groups, and families. Get free access today at summit.org slash listening in. Well, Rick, I want to try to drill down because I, I kind of warned you, if you will, in advance yeah, that, yeah. that a couple of things that I wanted to talk about, um, and one of them in particular was this notion of succession planning. Okay. Here you are. You mentioned you started in 1980. Yeah. I think I read somewhere that you had originally talked about maybe giving it up after 40 years because you had made a promise to the congregation. That Announced you, it hundreds of times. Yeah. Yeah. Which is beginning with the end in mind. Um, I actually had never actually put this down. And I wrote down, so what do I know about succession and transition? And I wrote down a dozen or so, 10, 11 uh, principles. We don't have time to get in all of them. But uh, there are some that I, I would like to cover because yeah, please. I think this is an issue. I probably talk to as many pastors as anybody does. I've been a pastor to pastor for 40 years. I spent the last three years, Warren, talking guys out of quitting because of COVID and the top three questions they were asking. This is the question you're asking is the number three question. Number one question is I worked so hard to grow our church and now we're 25 to 30% off. I want to give up. And so that's the, how do I stay encouraged when I've lost some, a lot of people didn't come back. 
they got out of the habit of coming to church. The second question uh, that they're asking is, how do I shepherd a church that's divided over politics? And I have to be the shepherd of everybody. And, care, and yet they're at, and they're giving greater allegiance to their political identity than to Christ identity. But the third one is this. Well, wait a minute. You, I can't resist. Yeah. So what do you tell those guys? What do you I, tell those that's guys? That's a whole other podcast. It really is a whole <laughs> okay. other podcast. All right. All right. Okay. Fair enough. But this third question is a lot of guys, there's a changing of the guard in succession. The first thing I say is realize that uh, there is no success without a successor. We're just cogs in a giant wheel called Christian history. There are people who served before me. There will be people who served after me. All I can do is Acts 13, 36, David served God's purpose in his generation. Then he died. I can't serve it. The previous generation can't serve it. So I have to look at somebody handed a baton to me, and now I've got to hand it to others. To to not go into ministry knowing you're going to hand the baton off is dumb. Because it's, it's like only a fool would go through life unprepared for something you know is inevitable. So I began with the end in mind. And that's why, as you pointed out, at the very first service in 1980, I announced, I'll give 40 years to this church. Now, why that number? It was honestly, it was just the biggest number I could think of. It wasn't a number from God. God didn't say, go give 40 years. It was just, what I had done is in seminary, I had personally did a study of the 100 largest churches in the US. And I wrote to them myself, just on my own, while I was in school, and asked them a series of questions, asked the pastor questions, and I asked them to send me a packet of their bulletin and their program and their constitution. And I, I was just, I'm a learner. So I, I'm, I absorb I, and I'm a synthesizer. I, what I discovered out of that studying that those churches, got, it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. They're more than one way to grow a church. I can show you a church doing the exact opposite thing, and they're both growing. So anybody who tells you this is the only way to grow a healthy church, they're wrong. They're just wrong. God uses all kinds of styles and systems and personalities, things like that. But there there were two common denominators that I saw in every growing church. One of them was what I call the faith factor, leadership that isn't afraid to believe God. That's always found in every growing church. And the other one is longevity. When you have integrity, it gets better every year. Now, if you don't have integrity, it gets worse every year. But if you have integrity, people are trusting you more and more and more because you have a proven track record of laying down your life for the sheep. They know you're not doing this for yourself. They know you're doing it for their benefit. I've been at thousands of bedsides, hundreds of gravesides, funerals, weddings. One of the reasons I was late talking to you today is I was doing pastoral care. One of the greatest things that I can do to help our new pastor is relieve his pastoral care and, and allow him to lead and not have, because it's, it's a bottomless pit. You're never going to have people who don't have needs. Yeah. And so it's something I can do. Well, let me ask a quick follow-up because I know you got 10 more principles that you want to at least mention. Uh, No success without a successor. You have chosen a successor, Andy Wood, in this particular case. What were you looking for? What did you see in him that made you say about him, this is the guy, this is the successor? Well, that's principle number six, so I'll be step down to that one, okay? (laughs) Okay. Here's the thing. Principle number six, we can go back and forth in these. Look for candidates who share the culture and personality of the church. They don't have to, for instance, we're a Southern Baptist church. They don't have to necessarily be a Southern Baptist, but churches typically don't split over theology. They split over personality. They split over strategy, and they split over culture. Uh, Now, for Saddleback, we have a very defined culture, and obviously, this is, I'm the only pastor our people have ever known. 70-something percent of the church I baptized. Uh, In the 43 years that I was pastor, I baptized 57,000 believers. Hmm. I don't know any church that's ever done that. In Acts, it says, and the Lord added daily to the church. That would mean 365 a year at the minimum, one a day, 365 a year. Well, in the 43 years I pastor, we've baptized five people every day for 43 years. That's unheard of. So these people will go, we don't know any other pastor mm-hmm. than Rick. Okay. So it's very important that he match culture and, and, and style. Um, 
So here were my, what we were looking for. First thing, we're what we call a purpose-driven church. Now, that was a big advantage to me because I've been training pastors in this forever. And over a million pastors around the world have gone through purpose-driven training. So I'm going, this is going to be easy. I got a big pool of people who already know how we build on the five verbs of the great commandment and the great commission, worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism, and how we balance these five purposes for health. In 1995, I wrote a book called Purpose Driven Church. Zondervan told me it's the only book on the church to sell over a million copies. It's still selling. And in that, so a lot of pastors had already known our style. Okay, so I had had that view. So number one, we're gonna look for somebody in a pool of a million pastors. That's an advantage I had. But then I I narrowed it down uh, with some other things. I said, okay, uh, number two, we're looking for somebody who's been a church planter. Because I planted a church, that's kind of a spiritual pioneer. Yeah. You know, there, there are entrepreneurs and there are maintainers. There's a difference between startup guys and builder guys. And I thought, we need somebody who probably has that pioneer spirit continue because that's what our people are used to. They're going, what's the next mountain? What are we going to take? And somebody who's got a, uh, who's not looking to go, well, it's all built. We're just going to have fun. So purpose driven. Uh, I was looking for a church planter. A third thing is um, West Coast. There are a lot of great pastors that are friends, guys that I've mentored. Most of the pastors of the big church in America, I trained. Okay, you, you know, you go down the list, there are guys I trained in the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s. But if they're in the South, Southern culture is not California culture. And even an accent. And they, so we go, kind of got a, so is he purpose driven? Is he church planter? Uh, I was looking for somebody on the West Coast. Another thing was on a church this big, it's a city. Okay. Uh, there are, I think, 180,000 names on the roll of attenders. I could be a mayor. Yeah. It's a city. Imagine how many people in a city of 180,000 are in the hospital each week. A lot. Well, you would expect that many members of Saddleback to be in the hospital each week. A lot. So you have to build counseling programs and pastoral visitation programs like that. Um, So I I was going, I can't have a newbie come in. I need somebody who has at least a decade under his belt has to be at least a decade of of proven track record that you grew something okay so that narrowed it down um then another question was um young enough to give 25 years now there were guys who actually fit those other qualifications here on the west coast but they're only like 10 years younger than me and so i'm going the church going let's go get somebody who in 10 years we have to do this again uh, our church is used to a long pastor. And here's the cool thing. When you're in a community, people just go, oh, that's old Pastor Rick. He's, he's as old as the hills. He's been here forever. I know more about Orange County than any politician ever will. Because I've spent decades listening to their problems, counseling them through crisis, walking them through the dark days. I know far more about Orange County than anybody else would because I've been here 43 years. And so... Uh, when we did that, it kind of narrowed it down to where we ended up with Andy. So, w- Rick, did you come up with the? I know you um, uh, you are very articulate about saying these right now. Yeah. Did you go into the search process with those in mind, or did you just sort of discover them as you went through the search process? No, I did it. I did it in in mind. One of the things that we did right up front is I start talking about transition with one of my, I've had nine different mentors in my life. One of them was Billy Graham, who took me on at age 18. But another one was Peter Drucker. Mm-hmm. And Drucker, 25 years ago, I went, I called up Peter and said, can I come talk to you about succession? I'm thinking about it 25 years ago. And I actually took with me Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel. Sure, yeah. And Chuck Fromm, the founder of Maranatha Music. So we took them in together and talked to him. And, and I asked Drucker, he said, where do you get your best successors? He said, well, the best successors actually are people who grew up in your system, in your church or whatever, and then go out and make it on their own and then come back. 
Not guys who've spent their entire life in your church because they're pretty myopic. Mm -hmm. They only know your, but people who know your system go out, make a name for themselves. And, and he said, don't do a prince in waiting. And so we didn't ever have a prince in waiting. Uh, Some churches have done that. We're going to bring a guy up for over 10 years, so like that. But I've always felt sorry for Prince Charles. He's got, when is mom going to die? I'm I'm, going to be 90 years old when I become king. Yeah. Well, you know, you said it's funny that you should mention Peter Drucker. And I've got to confess to you, um, Rick, that I did not know that that, uh, Peter Drucker had so intentionally mentored you or you you were. But uh, Peter Drucker apparently didn't really say this, but he is often attributed with saying that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Absolutely. And that that is sounds def- like that's what you're saying. That's exactly right. And and what we say is the culture in the hall beats the vision on the wall. Okay? It's what's done between the people. Now, pe- by the way, people, I just want to say this. People don't realize Peter Drucker was a devout Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He actually uh, was quite deep in his faith. In fact, one time I asked him, I said, Peter, when did you step across the line? When were you born again? He said, Rick, in his... Austrian at Rick. Well, when I was finally confronted with the fact that I understood grace, I realized I was never going to get a better deal. <laughs> right, right. <Yeah>. Yep. <laughs> and so uh, on his 100th birthday, uh, after he died, they all of the leadership of uh, Europe came together to celebrate him. I was the opening speaker for that, wow. that event. Yeah. 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 Well, I've always admired his uh, leadership uh, management books, and uh, that's fascinating. So one of the things that I learned from Drucker about transition and succession is um, build a system that will succeed you, that the system is actually the successor rather than a personality a personality-driven church is different than a purpose-driven church. We've all seen personality-driven churches. The moment they stumble, the church dies. Right. For instance, who was Wesley's successor? Nobody. He left a system called the Methodist Church. Who was Luther's successor? Nobody. He left a system called the Lutheran Church. Who was Calvin's successor? Nobody. He left a system called the Presbyterianism. Well, let me, Rick, if you will, yeah. it, with humility, gently push back on that sure. because you're a pretty big personality. And are, I think a lot of people listening to this are saying, is Rick Warren really saying that this is not a personality-driven Church. Well, I'm glad you're asking that because I will deny it. And I'll tell you why I'll deny it. What you want to do is you want to build a church that when you're gone, you're mourned, but not missed. Let me explain the difference. Oh, Rick's not here. He loved us. We loved him. It's not the same with Rick not here. So you're mourned, but you're not really missed because you so built an organization that it can run without you. And I have proven this multiple times over the years that the church does not need me to maintain. It only needs me to take it to the next step. And it doesn't need Andy to maintain. It needs him to take it to the next step. When I wrote Purpose Driven Life, I was gone for seven months. I took a seven-month sabbatical, and I... Um, I would get up in the morning at about 4.30 in the morning, go to a place to write, and I would write till about 5 in the evening, come home, uh, uh, eat dinner, play with the kids, and go to bed by about 8. In that seven months, I didn't preach a single sermon except Easter, and I, I did not uh, hold a single staff meeting. The church literally was well. They added 800 new members while I was gone. Wow. I'm thinking, man, we should – because what we'd set up a system of classes, 101, 201, 301, 401, membership class, maturity class, ministry class, mission class. These classes go every month, whether I'm here or not. And so how did we baptize 57,000 believers? Baptize after every service, have a system that, that is working. It's not based on me being there. In any year that I've been pastor, I have never preached more than 28 weekends for 43 years because I didn't want it to be on me. And I wanted them to hear God's word from other people. And I didn't want them to think, well, if Rick's not here, 
the mice will play because the cat's away kind of thing. Like that. So I really do say that I can give you examples over 43 years where I was sick for a year, the year that Kay got cancer. I was gone most of the year holding the bedpan while she's throwing up and her hair's falling out and she's facing cancer. The church grew consistently every single year because if you build a system that is still going at nighttime when you're sleeping and is going month to month, week to week, it's, it, is a, it is a bring them into membership, build them up to maturity, train them for their ministry, and send them out on mission. Bring them in, build them up, train them for, send them out, bring them in, build them up, train them for. We've been doing that 43 years, whether I'm here or not. But, but what you do need leadership for is not maintenance. Honestly, Saddleback could go a couple years without a pastor, and it would maintain. It wouldn't grow. You need a leader to help it grow. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rick, we are 20 minutes into this conversation. We've covered only two of the 11 <laughs> two principles. Of the 11 principles. So, so, and I've got, I've got stuff that I want to ask you about other than this. So yeah, sure. hit me with one or two more that you just think are really on your heart that you want to share. And then um, I'd like to pivot well, to some other. The biggest trap to transition and, and succession is the former pastor holding on. It's in his heart. You have to have your identity, not in your church. Because if your identity is your church, the moment you let go of your church, who are you? You have to know whose you are, not who owns you. So my identity has never been in the church. I've always had my identity in Christ. And principle number five in my list of 11 is offer your resignation every week. Mm, wow. Now, let me just say this. I'm not making this up. I have a prayer that I have prayed every Saturday night and every Sunday morning for 43 years. And as I was driving to church on the freeway, uh, it's quite a long prayer. It's about 15 minutes long. I've got it memorized. You know, Warren, uh, pro athletes have their game day ritual. They do the same thing to kind of get in the mood for the, for the game. And I would have my game day ritual prayer, which put me in the mind to be a servant, Okay, not to be a superstar, not to be a show off, but to be a servant. And I need to remind myself I am a servant and prepare not simply for preaching, but being on that patio and dealing one on one with the needs and hurts and interests of people. And so in that prayer, it's quite a long prayer. I have a number of things that I pray every week. But there's one part where I say this. God, I just want to remind myself that this is your church. It's not my church. It's your church. It belongs to you. It doesn't belong to me. You used me to start this church, but it's not my church. It belongs to you. And I belong to you, which means you have the right to move me at any point. Now, I said I'd give 40 years to this place, but I'm willing to step aside at any point if you have somebody who you want to do the job, uh, could do the job better. I willingly surrender. And I literally warrant take my hands off the steering wheel for a fraction of a second. I've done this every Saturday and Sunday for a year, which is a symbol that says, I'm not in control. You're, you're calling the shots. I belong to you and you have the right to move me. But then the most difficult part of the prayer is this sentence. And I'm willing to do something harder. But the point here is ask God what he wants you to do before you step down. And so finishing the task is a big part of what you're going to do from now on. Is that oh, yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I'm, I'm committed to the next 10 years. Follow me in this. I, I spent the last two years, Warren, reading everything I could possibly read on every previous attempt to complete the Great Commission, pretty much since the Reformation, over 500 years. And there have been a lot of attempts to complete the Great Commission. I probably, I, I'm sure I have over 200 books just on the Great Commission in my library. And I've read them all. And what I discovered is that they never involved the whole church. It tended to be agency-led, never church-led. You didn't ever mobilize the people in the pew. And it tended to be a small group of white Western men. Well, that doesn't represent the church. Okay, first, half the church women, and and white men are a minority in the church around the world. We need the whole church using all the gifts. We need everybody. Now, let me let me put this in perspective. 
There are 600 million Buddhists in the world. There are about 900 million Hindus in the world, most of them in India. There are about 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. There are only 14 million Jews. It should be 10 times that number. It should be 140 million, but five generations were killed in the Holocaust. So there's only 14 million Jews in the world. But there are 2.6 billion Christians in the world. Now, they're not all our brand. They're not all my tribe. They're not all your tribe. But if you were to say to these 2.6 billion Christians, do you believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe he rose again on Easter? Yes. Do you believe he ascended back to heaven? Yes. Do you believe he gave us a great commission? Yes. Do you believe he's coming back one day? Yes. Do you believe he sent the Holy Spirit to start the church? Yes. Then we're on the same team. Okay. You know, we may disagree over baptism, Lord's Supper, Mary, and a dozen other things, but you're not a Muslim. So we're not starting from scratch with these people. Now, if that's true, 2.6 billion people say, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Jew. I believe Jesus who he said he was. Many of those have, are cultural Christians. We know that. They have to be re-evangelized. Okay. Uh, just like they're, not every Muslim's a true Muslim. They're cultural Muslims. They're cultural Buddhists. Okay. That's true in any faith. But 2.6 billion, that means one out of every three people on this planet is already saying, I believe Jesus was the son of God and died on the cross for my sins and rose again. That means the church is bigger than China. The church is bigger than China and the U.S. and Europe put together. We're the biggest thing on the planet. Nothing is bigger than the church of God. So we need to figure out a way to mobilize the whole church. If every supposed Christian were actually trained to share their faith, if everybody only talked to two other people, everybody would get to hear it. Now, here's the big goal. Um, if this really is 2022, it's AD in the year of our Lord. It means 2022 years from the birth of Christ. So that means Christ was born in year zero. Luke tells us that Jesus started his ministry right at about 30 years of age. And he had a three to three and a half year ministry. That means Christ died on the cross in AD 33. Christ resurrected in AD 33. Christ gave us the great commission in AD 33. And Christ sent his Holy Spirit to start the church in AD 33. That means in 10 years, 2033, it's the 2000th birthday of Christianity. Hmm. It's the 2000th anniversary of the great commission. It's the 2000th anniversary of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I said, as the leader finishing that, why don't we just use that as a date? There's no eschatological connection to it. It's just a date. When the year 2000 was coming up in the 90s, there were 2,800 different mission agencies that chose AD 2000 as a goal, okay? And it was just a date. Can we do this by this time? But that came and went, and there's been no unifying evangelism and discipleship goal since 2000. So I have been recruiting, and I have recruited 1,600 so far, denominations, mission agencies, and churches. And that's just a fraction of where we're going to commit to four goals by AD 2033. And we call them the B goals, Bible, Believer, Body of Christ, and Breakthrough Prayer. First, FTT, Bible. We want to have the Bible in the heart translation of every individual by AD 2033. No, you might live in France and speak French, but you really, your heart language is this sub thing over here. That means we got to reinvent how, how transition, uh, translations are done. It's too slow. We got to speed it up. It's way too slow to get it done by AD 33. Bible in everybody's heart translation. Believer. We want to train every believer to share their faith with another person in the next decade. That would be enormous. It would be now that means we're gonna to have to involve the whole church, which means tribes we aren't used to working with. Let me put this in perspective again. Of those two point six billion quote people who believe in the resurrection and the Trinity, 
and the start of the church and the Holy Spirit, a billion of those 2.6 billion are Catholics. 300 million of them are Eastern Orthodox. 500 million are Pentecostal. And 800 million are either evangelical or versions of Protestantism. So how do you get the whole church to work together on, we're never going to have, I'm not talking about structural unity. I don't think we even need it. I'm not talking about even doctrinal unity. I'm talking about missional unity because in Jesus twice, his unanswered prayer in John 17 is I pray that they may be one so that the world may know. The purpose of unity is not for structure. The purpose of unity is not for doctrine. The purpose of unity is that the world may know. The world will be one, W-O-N, when we are one, O-N-E, in one thing, getting the gospel out. That's what FTT is all about. Bible, believer, uh, body of Christ. We want every existing church to either plant a church or sponsor a church in the next decade. Okay. Because we want a church within access of every unbeliever in the world within 10 years. A church within access of every unbeliever. And so that means we're going to have to multiply. How do you know when a church is mature? The mark physically maturity is puberty. A little girl becomes a woman when he has the ability to reproduce. A little boy becomes a man when he has the ability to reproduce. I don't care how doctrinal a church is, if they haven't reproduced, they're not mature. The mark of a mature church is reproduction. It's the mark of a healthy church is uh, an apple tree is more apples. And, and so we're going to really focus on that. The other thing is, is a breakthrough prayer. And that is, we're only going to be able to do this if the Lord builds the house. I have been meeting with the prayer generals of networks around the world for the last two years. I love Zoom. It allows me to, to do kind of stuff. I did a Zoom, uh, actually, I did a um, video conferencing technology that I met with a million prayer warriors a couple months ago. Uh, it, it, let me, if I, I've got a couple of questions. If, sure. can, we, can we pivot off of this? A couple of questions that I want to ask you, kind of in closing. Sure. Um, uh, some of them, because I I'd actually put the word out on social media that I was going to be interviewing you, and I got a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you, and a couple that I just think I want to ask you, because I'd be sure. kind of committing journalistic malpractice and uh, <laughs> if I didn't ask them. Um, so, you know, the succession is more or less in place. Andy is, you know, the pastor. You're, um, you moved on to the next assignment of finishing the task. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that came up in my social media request for questions was um, about what you're going to do. Do you sit in the front pew of the church on Sunday morning and listen to Andy <laughs> preach? Okay, that's principle number 11. Yeah. Principle number 11 is once you got it, get out of the way. Okay. I told Andy I wouldn't be at church for at least three months. First place, I want him to to get settled, get staffed. And you got to do a handoff where you make the guy the hero. And, and, and part of it was is when you bring somebody in, you do it slowly so uh, realizing that a, a church, when you have transition, the members are going to have two feelings. First, they're going to have grief that the person that they have loved is leaving. Second, they're going to have apprehension. Is this guy going to be okay? Are we going to be loved by him like we were loved by this guy? You must address those correctly and directly in your transition period. Andy and Stacy, after going through uh, literally 11 levels of vetting, we had 11 levels of vetting. Then some accusations came up that you know. Sure, yeah, you bet. And, and when those came up, we actually, we treat accusations seriously. My, uh, this wasn't a sexual a- a- accusation. Yeah. My wife More was- t- leadership issues. Was, and my bull- wife was uh, molested in her father's church as a little girl. So I take accusations seriously. Right, yep. And it's a big deal. So we went back and did three more levels. Uh, we weren't surprised by the accusation. We had already said, wait a minute, conflict is not abuse. Uh, disappointment, disagreement is not abuse. Uh, and so we weren't surprised by it. But anyway, when Andy came, I, he came July 1. I said, for the first month, I want you to settle your family. Don't even do anything. 
Okay. I don't care if you come to church or not. Just settle your family. So for the month of July, I said take a one-month vacation in your new house. Get your kids settled. If they're not settled, it isn't going to work. So take a full month just to work on that. Then in August, I said, I don't want you to assume any responsibility. I'm still the pastor, but I want you to build relationships. You can come to any meeting. You can come to any staff. I want you to meet as many people as you can. Just work on relationships without having to work on the job. In September, mid-September, I physically handed him a baton in a, in a service. And, and, and we had a great service where there was commissioning. It's almost like a wedding. You have, like, there's vows and there's covenants. And he spoke and I spoke and I laid hands on him. And, and, uh, and so that was the commission. And then he took over. And I said, now, Andy, you're not going to see me for at least three months. Now, I will always be the founding pastor of the church. I don't want to be at any meetings. I don't want to make any decisions. I'm simply going to love people. And I'll help relieve some of the pastoral care for the older people who are going to be dying off. I need you to be working on next generation. So I said, at some point we'll come back in and we'll be sitting in the crowd. And one day we'll be the old couple with the cane waving. That's our pastor. And here's the thing. I always addressed Andy as my pastor. And I I hug him. This is my pastor. This is my pastor. And I, I, and I said, it kind of touches me. I've never had a pastor. Hmm. Now I've got a pastor. I got somebody to pastor me. And so I said, Andy, I'll be available. You can call me from behind the scenes, but I'm never going to be at a meeting and I'm never going to make a decision. Yeah. And what you do with what I say is always between you and me. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other questions, Rick, that I wanted to ask you about, um, but again, came in from social media was about women's ordination. You you guys are Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists are pretty clear on where they stand on women's ordination. In fact, they may even become more clear in the future. Um, You stood up at the most recent Southern Baptist convention and uh, expressed an alternative alternative view, shall we say. Say <laughs> yeah. more about that. Yeah, I will. First place, all my life raised in a conservative Southern Baptist background, I have uh, always thought, what's women's role? Men are pastors, women are not pastors. And I, while I traveled around the world and I could see women in China uh, uh, pastoring far bigger churches than Saddleback, they, it wasn't enough. I had to have a verse. I'm enough of a biblical person. I can't, I can't do something unless there's a verse that tells me this is okay. Now, what we have problem is that people on either side of this tend to choose the verses they like and ignore the other ones when there are actually verses for both. For instance, the Bible says that an elder is to be the husband of one wife. I believe that. All of our elders are men, married men, okay? And and so our senior pastor, we believe, should be a male and because he's an elder with the other elders. All our elders are male. Our senior, we believe the senior pastor should be male. Nobody even cared to ask that before they even brought it up. On the other hand, what uh, was brought up at the convention when Al Mohler said the office of the pastor. Well, the problem is there's no office of the pastor in Scripture. There's an office of elder. There's an office of deacon, and you could say that the bishop is, is, is an office which is similar to elder, but if, if pastor is an office, where are the qualifications? They're never listed. There are, that's, what happened is Baptists were afraid to use the word elder because Presbyterians, and Baptists were afraid to use the word bishop because of Catholics, so they chose the word pastor. There is no office of pastor. It's pretty easy to make cases of women apostles in Scripture that were sent out. Okay, that were sent out. Uh, there are certainly uh, uh, women deacons, sink Phoebe and others. Mm-hmm. But so we say a pastor is a gift, and we recognize that women get gifts just like men do. And so we're not saying a, a, a woman should be an elder. I, when I find two scriptures that say the opposite, I believe them both. I don't explain away one. And here's the verse that changed my mind. Acts 2, 17 and 18. We call Acts 2, which is Pentecost sermon, the charter of the church. The church at its birth was the church at its best. That if if we want to have the results of Acts, we got to go back to Acts. That the antidote to the 21st century is the first century. 
right now, a lot of people want to go backwards. Make America great again means let's go back to some era. There are some Christians who want to go back to the 1950s. There are some Christians who want to go back to the Reformation. They think that's the golden age. I say, no, no, I, I want to go back. You just don't go back far enough. I want to go back to the first century. And in Acts chapter 2, where we get the charter of the church, where Peter says the Old Testament is over. What was the Old Testament? Male ordained priesthood. Only the, only the Levites got to go into the temple. And only one of them got to go into the Holy Holies only one time a year. It was done in a very limited, there was not an idea every member's a minister. There was no idea of the priesthood of the believer, okay? It was male ordained priests called Levites. But Joel predicts in Joel 2, and Peter quotes him in Acts 2, he says, this is that that Joel mentioned. In the last days. Now, here, when Peter's saying this, he's saying the last days started at Pentecost. That we're not in the last of the last days, but the last days actually changed with the coming of the Holy Spirit. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then he says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. A mark of the New Testament is that daughters will prophesy, not simply sons. Sons and daughters will preach, will prophesy. Your young men will have dream, uh, visions and your young old men will have dream dreams. On all flesh I will pour out my spirit. Both men and women will prophesy. Let's preach. So do I believe that a woman, when Paul says a woman has to keep silent in the church, he was talking that as a rule for everybody? I don't. I think the, the general principle of, of, of Acts 2, when the charter of the church is being given, that in the church, everybody gets to play. Now, when you say this, sons and daughters, young and old, men and women, who gets left out? Nobody. No, this is a whole, everything shifted in the New Testament. Now, here's the problem. For the first 300 years, we followed the charter of Acts. And Christianity had its greatest period of growth in the first 300 years. It went from 120 in the upper room to the official religion of the Roman Empire. They grew because it was sons and daughters, young and old, men and women. Everybody was authorized to preach. Yeah. Well, Rick, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And let's just stipulate for the record that uh, I, I didn't want to get into an argument Thank with you, you. But it does seem to me, and you correct me if I'm wrong on yeah. this, that your position yeah. does put you at odds with the Southern Baptist Convention right now. Is it that really fair or not? It really doesn't, because here's the thing. That rule was only put into the Southern Baptist faith message in the year 2000. It had already been a convention for 200 years. Okay, It wasn't put in there. I asked Herschel Hobbs, who wrote the original Baptist faith message, why isn't ordination covered? It's not even mentioned in the Baptist faith message, even in the current one. It's not even mentioned. So you can't kick somebody out on ordination because he said, because Baptists have never agreed on it. Then three of the original speaker, uh, uh, authors of the 2000 Baptist faith message, I personally asked Asia Rogers, does this include staff members? It said a woman can't be a pastor. Goes, no, we're just talking about senior pastor. Paige Patterson is on record as saying the same thing. And even Al Mohler was asked that question by the Louisville newspaper, and he said it didn't. So he changed his mind. So you think that the ultimate resolution of this will be that um, women can have every position except senior pastor? I think so. In the Southern Baptist Convention, I think people realize, first place, it's not biblical to say the pastor is an office. Elder is the office, and you ought to call it what if you're if you really believe in inerrancy, call it what the Bible calls it. Yeah. Okay. And second, pastoring is a gift, and if it's not a gift, then you better have the office of elder, uh, of of apostle, prophet, divan. Make those all offices too. Right. Rick, we've got to bring this to a close, but I, uh, I hope you'll forgive me for asking a couple of personal questions uh, in closing here. Um, I spoke with Kay about three years ago mm -hmm. at the um, at the conference in Dallas, Texas on sexual abuse that she was uh -huh. one of the keynote right. speakers for. We I interviewed her for the podcast, mm -hmm. and she 
you know, spent a lot of time talking there. And then I spoke with you uh, maybe a year or two before that. I'm trying to remember the exact timing, but it was a it was a year after your son passed away. Yeah, yeah. And and Kay mentioned that you know sort of referenced that episode in y'all's life um, in my subsequent interview with her. Yeah. So I guess my long context for just asking, how you doing? How are you and Kay doing? Well, thank you for asking. First place, there is no expiration date on grief. You don't get over it. You get through it. The death of my son, after 27 years of struggling with mental health, death by suicide, took his own life, was clearly the most traumatic experience in my life. I'll never get over it. But you do get through it. And Kay and I decided that we weren't going to waste a hurt. We weren't going to waste a hurt. And so while... We always knew that we would become spokesmen for mental health. As long as Matthew was alive, we felt it was his story to tell. Mm -hmm. And we wanted him to be able to share. And I remember him coming to me one time at 17 years of age in tears. And he'd struggled with mental health and depression all his life. And he said, Dad, why can't I just die and go to heaven? I know I'm saved. He would lead many people to Christ. He, he had a tender heart and a tortured mind. He could lead people to Christ who were depressed and considering suicide. He said, it just doesn't work with me. It doesn't take the claw out of my brain. Why can't I die? Well, that'll rip the heart out of a dad mm-hmm. to hear that. And as I'm standing there sobbing and he's sobbing. I said, son, I, I don't think you, you really want to die. I just think you want the pain to end. And I've always prayed two prayers for you since you were a little baby. One, that either God would miraculously heal you. We believe God heals today, but it doesn't happen all the time, which is why it's called a miracle. I don't know why some people get healed and some don't. It does happen, but it doesn't happen to everybody. And that's in the sovereignty of God. But the other thing is, what do you do when you have a problem that you're going to live with the rest of your life? Some problems are never going to be solved. Everybody who's listening knows what I'm talking about right now. And if you have a problem that can't be solved, you have to manage it. And my prayer is either through medication, counseling, spiritual growth, formation of your soul through a discipler, whatever. All these things will help you manage the pain because we live on a broken planet. Everything's broken. Our bodies are broken, the weather's broken, the economy's broken, politics is broken, uh, our minds are broken. We're all mentally ill. We all have hidden fears. We all have compulsions. All of our brains don't work right. Now, if I take a pill for my liver, there's no shame in that. If my heart doesn't work, I take a pill for that, there's no shame in that. But why if my brain doesn't work, I take a pill, I'm supposed to be ashamed of that. It's just another organ. And it's not working. It's not a sin to be sick. Your chemistry is not your character, okay? Your chemistry is not your character. And so he had, a, as I said, a tender heart and a tortured mind. When Matthew died, of course, because of our notoriety, it was on everywhere, CNN, news ticker. I'm walking through an airport, and I see my son's name and the word suicide. It's, it's brutal. It's brutal. And then, of course, because you're, uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a well-known person. People who don't like me used to attack and said all kinds of stuff, armchair psychology. Well, maybe Matthew was gay and his son, his dad was, you know, pushing that, all kinds of nonsense. I received probably 35,000 letters of condolences from all around the world because I've been all around the world. And honestly, Warren, the ones that meant the most to me were not, the ones from kings and queens and rock stars, presidents. I got those, and they were nice. But the ones that meant the most to me were from people who had been in depression that Matthew had led to Christ. And people would write to me and say, your son came on a suicide site and talked me out of suicide, and I'm going to be in heaven because of your son. I know he was struggling himself. I know he struggled but I'm going to be in heaven because of him. And I remember writing in my journal that day, in God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. 
And we're all broken trees, Warren. I'm a broken tree. If God only used perfect people, nothing would get done. You've been listening in on part one of my conversation with Rick Warren. I hope you'll also tune in for part two, which is a walking tour of his library. It's a peek into both a remarkable library and I think it adds an important dimension to the story of Rick Warren that we started in today's episode. A couple of quick notes before we go. You can hear my 2014 interview with Rick Warren by going to the Listening In Archive. It's one of about 500 long-form interviews that I've done over the past nine years for World News Group. To find my interview with Rick or any of the others in our archive, just go to the World News Group website. That's WNG.org and use the search engine to explore. Listening In comes to you from World News Group, and this program is just one of the many podcasts and publications available. To find out more about our complete family of products, visit wng.org slash subscribe. Once again, I hope you'll listen to part two of my conversation with Rick Warren, and I also hope you'll tune in next week to hear the final conversation of this season of Listening In. It's a conversation with Christopher Watkin. Chris Watkins' new book is called Biblical Critical Theory, and it's ended up on several best of lists for 2022. It's a magnificent book, and my conversation with Chris is one I think you won't want to miss. The producer for today's program is Paul Butler. Johnny Franklin is the technical producer. I'm your host, Warren Smith, and you've been listening in. Now We Live invites and equips Christians to propel faith into action. This free worldview Bible study will spark rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions. Watch Summit Ministries' worldview video series for free at summit.org slash listening in. These six videos from Summit Ministries offer life-on-life discipleship for churches, small groups, and families. Get free access today at summit.org slash listening in.